So Deontay Wilder failed to turn up for some media engagement to promote his rematch with Tyson Fury. Fury, of course, did turn up. Wilder apparently had the flu, so he was a no-show. Tyson Fury took to social media afterwards to ridicule Deontay Wilder, calling him all kinds of names for not showing up. Now, some people are saying that Wilder just doesn't want to be in the same room as Fury because Fury has a way of getting inside his opponent's head and getting under their skin. That's very possible. But there's, it's also possible that Deontay Wilder is genuinely ill. Yeah, if you get the flu and you get it bad, I mean, you don't want to be trading verbal blows with Tyson Fury, do you? In fact, you don't want to be talking to anybody, really, if you got a really, really bad cold or the flu or whatever. So who knows? But even if this is Deontay Wilder <clears throat> trying to avoid a verbal confrontation with Tyson Fury, because Tyson Fury is obviously going to beat Deontay Wilder in a verbal exchange 10 times out of 10. Yeah? I think if, if Wilder is avoiding Fury in a verbal confrontation, it's the right thing to do. Because you stick to your strengths. It might not be the right thing to do from a promotional point of view and selling the most pay-per-views, but from a psychological point of view, I think it's the right thing for Deontay to do. Yeah? You don't want to let Fury get under your skin. Don't give him the opportunity. And if you're sitting there during the press tour, you know, time and time again with Fury, and there's no press tour, of course, for this fight. But if you're, you know, face-to-face -face with Fury and the build-up to the fight, he can take you off your game. Tyson Fury is the master of psychology when it comes to getting in the opponent's head. It's like, this is, you know, a slightly different example, but when Steve Collins fought Chris Eubank, senior, he came into the ring with headphones on. He blocked everything out. Eubank Sr. would like to try and intimidate, not necessarily intimidate, but he'd like to try and antagonize you or get in your head with his ring entrance, simply the best, coming out strutting and all. That wasn't just a performance for the crowd. That was a performance for his opponent. Steve Collins was like, to hell with that. I'm putting his headphones on, I'm getting in the ring and I'm sitting in the corner with my eyes closed and I'm blocking all that nonsense out. I'll see you when we get in the ring. I'll see you when the, when the bell starts for round one. That's when I'll see you. Forget about all the theatrics. I'm not letting that get in my head. And it actually worked as reverse psychology because that got in Eubank's head. The fact that Collins wasn't engaging or wasn't allowing Eubank, you know, to uh, put an impression upon him with his theatrics, that got to Eubank. Eubank admitted that got to him. So it could be the same thing with Deontay Wilder. If he just avoids engaging with Tyson Fury throughout the build-up to this fight, that could actually have the reverse psychological effect and that could bother Fury. Because he likes to be able to get at you. You know, he likes to be able to get under your skin and mess with your head, get you mad. That's Fury's thing. <laughs> you know, if he can't get you mad, if you're going into the fight cool, calm, and collected, I think that's an advantage for De Deontay Wilder and a disadvantage for Tyson Fury. So who knows? Maybe Deontay Wilder is genuinely ill. Maybe he's decided he doesn't want to engage with Tyson Fury. Either way, I think it's the right decision. Yeah, because you don't want to be ill in front of Tyson Fury. I mean, he's, he's going to rip you to shreds verbally even more so than he already would. You don't want to give Tyson Fury the opportunity to do what he does best 
which is mess with the opponent's mind. So it is what it is. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. I'm sure a lot of people are disappointed because they like the back and forth between Wilder and Fury. But I can understand why, you know, Wilder would prefer not <laughs> to engage in that. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. It's Hatman, I'm out. Hatman merch is now available. We got t-shirts, vests, hoodies, and more. Just click the link below. Tyson Fury says he was getting a bit stale and that's why he parted ways with Ben Davison. I mean, I talked in a previous video about Andy Lee's comments. Andy Lee obviously is Tyson Fury's cousin. And Andy Lee seemed to suggest that Tyson Fury wanted to bring Javan Sugar Hill in in addition to Ben Davison. And perhaps Ben Davison decided to step because he didn't want to be, I don't know, undermined. He maybe felt that too many cooks can spoil the broth. That's what Andy Lee seemed to be suggesting. That it was Ben Davison who felt like, you know what, nah, I don't want to be coach number two or uh, double number one or whatever. It, it, it's too too much confusion. I'd rather you just let Javon Sugar Hill train you and, you know, we'll meet up down the line somewhere. So whatever the case is, Tyson Fury said he was getting a bit stale, basically with Ben Davison. And look, it can get stale. It all depends on the fighter, the character. Um... Stale as in maybe he isn't learning new things or stale as in he just needs a different environment with different people to feel excited again. You see, Tyson Fury, as we all know, is a very erratic character. He's a guy who can be Jekyll and Hyde. One day he wakes up and he's like this playful, uh, respectful, nice, jovial individual. And the next day he wakes up and he's like Satan himself. So, so he, he is up and down, he's, he's erratic, he's all over the place. And a guy like that, you can understand him switching trainers and getting, oh, okay, this is boring now, I need some excitement back. Tyson Fury is almost like an adrenaline junkie. That's how, yeah, maybe he is an adrenaline junkie. He's somebody who always needs excitement, you know? If he doesn't get excitement, if it's getting all a bit too routine and stale, he's like, oh God, no, let me change things here. So I get it with Tyson. And, it, and in that case, see, some people are saying that it's a bad move for Tyson Fury to part ways with Ben Davison so close to the Wilder rematch. But it's better that he does this and feels energized again and excited again with a new team rather than stay with Ben Davison and go into the Deontay Wilder rematch feeling flat. So with Tyson Fury, it's not all about the technical side of things. Tyson Fury knows how to box. It's about keeping him excited, keeping him motivated, keeping him interested. You know, that's the key, I think, with Tyson Fury. So, again, if that's the case, he's made the right decision. He's got Andy Lee there, who's a you know very calm individual. Obviously, knows him. He said uh, Tyson Fury said he trained with Javon Sugar Hill years ago when he was first introduced to the Kronk setup by Andy Lee. Obviously, met the, the late great Manny Stewart and all that. So there is some familiarity there. It won't be, you know, the same as meeting a new trainer for the first time ever and having to get used to the other person's ways and methods. No, he's already familiar or somewhat familiar with Javon Sugar Hill. So we'll see. The only issue I have is with some of the tactics that Tyson Fury has been alluding to using for the Deontay Wilder rematch. I hope it's misdirection from Tyson Fury because I think that would be a big mistake for him to sit down on his punches more and try and hurt Deontay Wilder. 
You know, people say that he wobbled Wilder in the first fight. And if he'd gone for it, you know, he could have taken Wilder out. I totally disagree. I know a lot of people say that, but I totally disagree. Deontay Wilder has got very skinny legs. He's a lanky guy. Sometimes, you know, you get hit with a shot, you get knocked off balance. And because his legs are so skinny, it makes it look like he's really hurt. I know some people are going to disagree with this, but this is my view. This is what I see in Deontay Wilder. Because I'm not just watching his legs, I'm watching his face. I'm watching upstairs as well as the legs. People said the same thing in the Dominic Brazil fight, that he got wobbled and he was badly, he wasn't badly hurt. I think he was marginally buzzed by Dominic Brazil in the first, uh, in, well, he only went one round. <coughs> Excuse me. He was marginally buzzed for a split second against Dominic Brazil. But he wasn't seriously hurt. Yeah? Same thing in the Tyson Fury fight. In fact, I don't think he was even marginally buzzed, to be honest with you. In the Watching it back several times, I don't think he was ever buzzed against Tyson Fury. Truth be told. Yeah, not seriously. I don't think he, uh, that Fury was even remotely close to scoring a knockdown against Wilder, much less knocking him out. So that's the issue I have, is with the tactics that Tyson Fury may use in the rematch, if he's going for more power, if he's coming in heavier, if he's trying to do more damage, I think that's a recipe for disaster for Tyson Fury. I mean, perhaps I'm wrong, we'll see when the fight takes place, but I just think that that is uh, playing into Wilder's hands in a major way. For Tyson Fury to win, just repeat what he did first time. If anything, come in lighter. Yes, lighter. That's the opposite of what John Fury says he should do. I think he should come in even lighter than he did in the first fight. Obviously, you don't want to be weak. You need to lose the weight the right way so you've got plenty of energy. But he needs to understand what his strengths are. Tyson Fury's strengths are not big, long-range power punches and all the, you know, winning, winning in a shootout against a big punch. That's not his game. That's not how he beat Vladimir Klitschko. He needs to approach it the same way he approached the, the Klitschko fight. Understand that he's got a guy in front of him who is a tremendous puncher. Now Klitschko had power in both hands. Wilder's really pre predominantly a right-hand puncher. He does have power in the left too, but it's not as prolific as, let's say, Klitschko's left. So he needs to treat Wilder with the same attitude that he treated Klitschko. Just frustrate the guy. Move around. Don't worry about hurting him. He's going to leave himself open. He's going to get frustrated and throw shots and miss. You can punish him then. But don't go looking to hurt him. So that's the only issue I have. As far as changing the trainers in general, you know, I think it's uh, more to do with Tyson Fury's mood than it has to do with anything technical. That's my take on it. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. It's Hatman, I'm out. Hatman merch is now available. We got t-shirts, vests, hoodies, and more. Just click the link below. Gold Star Promotions is proud to present Floyd Money Mayweather. The man himself is coming to the UK for his UK tour, February and March 2020. For all info and tickets, Gold Star Promotions, the host of UK. Word here back on Behind the Gloves with another video. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a topic uh, which is circulating right now regarding the unified light heavyweight champion of the world, IBF and WBC champ Arta Betabiev, regarding his next defense against IBF mandatory Chinese uh, light heavyweight Fan Long Men. Um, that went to purse bids, and according to Mike Coppinger and off this page here, Boxing News 24, um, a Chinese agency won the purse bids. Uh, I'll read Mike's tweet out for you there. 
Source, a Chinese agency at 1.9 million won the purse bid for the IBF light heavyweight title fight between Arta Betabiev and China's Meng Fanlong. The bout will likely be staged in China in the spring. Top rank, which holds a long-term deal with Betabiev, bid 1.35 million. Uh, now, there's a bit of a twist on this, actually. Uh, and if I just go onto this page here on Bad Left Hook, uh, there is a complication, as you can see, they put here. According to veteran boxing scribe Gabe Oppenheim, Betabiev, a Dagestani Muslim, uh, refuses to fight in China due to the nation's ongoing mass internment and reported human rights abuse of the Uyghurs. He was originally supposed to feature on the February 1st card, now headlined by Jose Ramirez and Victor Posto. Uh, this is what they got off the site. Betabiev wouldn't agree to appear in China. As a Muslim, he takes great offence to China's mistreatment of co-religionist Uyghurs, an ethnic group related to the Turks in the country's west, one million of whom are said to be detained in concentration camps. It didn't help China's lying about this when documented about official Uyghurs brainwashing when recently leaked. So Betabiev was replaced as the card's headliner with undefeated 140 champ Jose Ramirez who usually fights in California where he fills up 14,000 seats arenas. It's a strange situation but top rank was scrambling understandably. This was too much to forego. Now uh, a very sticky situation here uh, with the title and I'm guessing if he doesn't fight, if he refuses to fight in China with the purse bids being won there and the fight looking like it's going to take place in China. Uh, he may be stripped of that title, he may be stripped of his IBF belt. Now, if we look at the rankings, uh, it would then be Meng Fanlong uh, challenging for it. And the next rated fighter on the list, there's no one at number two. Number three is UK's Joshua Boatsi. Now, that is a potential fight. Meng Fanlong and Joshua Boatsi for a vacant IBF, uh, if, that is if, the IBF strip Arthur Betabiev if he does not go over to China and defend his title. What do you guys think of the situation? I mean, it's a very, uh, like I said, sticky situation. It involves religion and politics. Um, uh, really, it's not, it's not a very nice situation for anyone involved. Uh, let us know what you think in the comment section below. And if that fight did happen, would Joshua Boatsi become uh, the light heavyweight champion of the world? The IBF light heavyweight champion of the world early 2020. Make sure to subscribe to the channel to keep up to date with all the latest news. Hey, Fight fans, it's Michelle Joy Phelps. If you haven't already subscribed to my YouTube channel, make sure you go ahead and do so by clicking the icon right here and hit the bell button so that every time we upload a new video, you get an alert so that you don't miss out. Now we know that Daniel Dubois and his promoter Frank Warren would like him to fight Joe Joyce sometime this year, but a fight that neither him nor his promoter have talked about is Martin Bacoli, because Martin Bacoli and his manager have called Daniel Dubois out several times. Uh, Eddie Hearn apparently made an offer to Daniel Dubois to face Martin Bacoli, but so far, radio silence from Team Dubois. Now, Bacoli is a realistic fight. Why? Well, he's had a similar number of professional fights to Daniel Dubois. Bacoli is currently 15-1, and one, so he's had 16 fights. He's beaten a similar level of opposition. So Daniel Dubois has been fighting people like Fujimoto, Ebenezer Tete, Nathan Gorman, Latte, Kajanu, Kevin Johnson, Tom Little. Whereas Martin Bacoli has fought, let's see, Rodney Hernandez. He also fought Kevin Johnson. That's a common opponent. Daniel Dubois went the distance with Kevin Johnson, of course. 2018, went 10 rounds, whereas Martin Bacoli actually stopped Kevin Johnson in five. 
That was last year, 2019. So he's fought Hernandez, he's fought Kevin Johnson, he's fought Marius Wack, of course. Managed to get the stoppage there. Marius Wack just went the distance with Dylan White. So that was a good result for him. Camille Sokolovsky, somebody he's beat. Have they both? I think they've both fought D.O. Jones, haven't they? So that's another common opponent. Martin Bacoli stopped D.O. Jones in one round. What did Daniel Dubois do against D.O. Jones? He stopped D.O. Jones in three. So against at least some of the common opponents, Martin Bacoli's been doing better. Again, just because somebody does better against a common opponent, it doesn't mean he's the better fighter necessarily because styles make fights. But still, when you look at the stage they're both at in their careers, it's a similar stage. Therefore, this is a viable fight. If they're willing to put Daniel Dubois in there against anybody, as Frank Warren claims, why not Martin Bacoli? Surely Bacoli is better than putting him in against Fujimoto or Ebenezer Tete. Richard Latte as well. He likes fighting these uh, obscure African fighters. Or well, here's an obscure African fighter who would love to fight Daniel Dubois. Now, there's been rumors, of course, over the past year or so of Martin Bacoli giving Daniel Dubois the business in sparring. But sparring is sparring. You know, Nathan Gorman said that he gave Daniel Dubois fits in sparring when they were both on uh, amateur team together. But we saw what happened in their pro fight. So just because Bacoli did something in sparring doesn't mean he could do it in a pro ring against Daniel Dubois. But let's see, it at least gives the fight some kind of backstory. As with the Nathan Gorman fight, it's a realistic fight right now. Martin Bacoli is not a big ticket seller. You can get him cheap. You know, Eddie Hearn said uh, Frank Warren can pay Martin Bacoli whatever he wants him for the Daniel Dubois fight, you know, whatever he wants to pay him. So basically he's saying that he will pay Bacoli himself, that Warren doesn't have to worry about paying Bacoli. He, could, he, can, he can have Bacoli for a very cheap price against Dubois or virtually for free. I mean, that's a great offer. If you truly believe in your guy, right? Bacoli's a good opponent, fighting at a similar stage of his career to Dubois. But I don't think Frank Warren wants it because if Dubois ends up losing, imagine how much that's going to boost Bacoli's career and imagine how much that's going to boost Matchroom. And Matchroom, let's be real, have got Frank Warren and Queensbury and BT on the ropes again. You know, I kind of felt like there might have been a turning in the, of the tide when Frank Warren did the BT deal and AJ lost and all that kind of stuff. There was an opportunity there for Frank Warren and BT to do some catch up, make up some ground against Sky and Matchroom. But alas, it wasn't to be. And BT and Frank Warren are back on the ropes again. If Bacoli was to fight Dubois and beat him, and I'm not saying he necessarily would, but it's a good fight. If Bacoli was to fight Dubois and beat him, Oh no, where does Frank Warren go from there? Because he's, you know, not exactly got a whole load of top fighters at the moment, does he? He's already lost Billy Joe Saunders. I mean, Tyson Fury is essentially a top-ranked Bob Arum fighter more than he is a Frank Warren Queensbury fighter. I mean, they're talking about the Tyson Fury Wilder rematch maybe being on Sky. So you can see why Frank Warren would be hesitant to put Daniel Dubois in against Bacoli. If uh, Bacoli was a BT fighter, Frank Warren might be more willing to put Dubois in with him. But because he's a matchroom fighter, and we know Frank Warren is fiercely competitive, he doesn't want to take that risk. Not with a matchroom guy. If it was some random guy even, let's, let's say Bacoli was signed to, I don't know, some obscure promotional outfit in Africa. Frank Warren would probably take the Bacoli fight for Dubois. But when it's Hearn, he's like, Ugh, I can't do it. If, if Bacoli beats my guy, I'm done. Or I'm a lot closer to being done than I was beforehand. I, I don't think 
Frank Warren is confident enough in Dubois to take it. Not that he thinks Dubois will definitely lose, but he understands that it's a big risk and a risk that he's probably not willing to take. As far as Dubois and his confidence, I mean, how many times has Dubois taken a beating in sparring over the years? I don't know. I mean, in, in boxing, everybody takes a beating at some stage. Whether it's amateur or pro, as, as in sparring or in an actual fight, you're going to take a beating at some stage. Are you the kind of person who can come back from those beatings and then put it on the other guy? Or are you somebody who is, is disturbed when somebody's giving you a beating and they've always got kind of a, a, a mental hold on you? They've always got your number, psychologically as well as stylistically. Who knows what kind of character Daniel Dubois is? Uh, is he confident that he could beat Martin Bacoli right now? I think anybody who interviews Daniel Dubois anytime soon, they should put the Bacoli question to him. I know Daniel Dubois isn't very forthcoming with answers, but I'd like to see what he says about Martin Bacoli. Because if the public can, the boxing interviewers, etc., make this Dubois-Bacoli fight a talking point, then it might be more realistic that a fight will happen because of the fact that Daniel Dubois' pride might kick in. And he might say to Frank Warren, you know what? And his dad, I can fight Bacoli. They're saying that this guy is, uh, you know, beat me up in sparring or whatever. Now I can fight and beat this guy. Don't worry about it, Frank. Let me do it. They might create some kind of rivalry there. Again, these are guys at similar stages of their careers. You know, neither one of, it, neither one of them is a big ticket seller. Of course, Dubois sells more tickets than Bacoli. Let's be real. All right. But again, Dubois is not a household name in the UK. He's not on pay-per-views. He's not doing anything big. Same as Bacoli. So it's a viable fight. I doubt it will happen. I think a more realistic fight will be Joe Joyce. But even a Joe Joyce fight, I got my doubts about because, you know, Frank Warren probably not going to pay him the money that he wants. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. Who should Daniel Dubois fight next? Uh, do you think that he will fight Martin Bacoli? Do you think he'll consider it? Or do you think it'll be Joe Joyce? Or do you think it'll be somebody else? Do you think Daniel Dubois is going to have a big year in 2020? Or is it going to be a slow year, a disappointing year where we don't see him in too many competitive fights? Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. It's Hatman, I'm out. Hatman merch is now available. We got t-shirts, vests, hoodies, and more. Just click the link below. Danny Flexen, welcome to this week's edition of Seconds Out Reflections. We're here every Monday, 4.30pm, to look back on the boxing action of the weekend just gone. And the boxing scene is really getting back into the swing of things now, as 2020 has gotten into its stride. Atlantic City, that old but still viable um, casino town or city, as it's Atlantic City, obviously, um, was the place to be this weekend with two shows, one on Friday night and one on the Saturday night. And the Friday night one um, saw some history being made when Clarissa Shields um, beat Ivana Hebezin for vacant belts down at 154 pounds. And in doing so, she became the fastest person of either gender um, to win three world titles at different weights. Um, congratulations to her for that. Um, it was a, a wide win. I think she dropped Habazin somewhere around round six was clearly in charge all the way through as you would expect from a, a double Olympic gold medalist. Um, now there's been a lot of controversy over the achievement um, since. Not so much of um, her superiority in the women's game but more comparing how quick she won those um, world titles at three different weights to some of the men that have done it. Um, now what I would say is 
she shouldn't that that should never have been an issue first of all you know it's a great achievement within the women's game anyway um it's a stock history making moment well done to her i think if you insist on comparing them then you do have to point out a couple of things one that the depth in the women's game is nowhere near that of the men's game in any division really um and that's just a fact you know as as time goes on now female boxing is included in the olympics for example take-up participation among female amateurs is at an all-time high. I think that will start to change and the women's game will only get deeper as years go by. But as it stands right now, it's not as deep as the men's class. Having said that, um, she still did really well. She's beaten some good people, including Christina Hammer, on her way to this achievement. Um, the only other thing I would say is that operating in the women's game it's a lot easier to get the opportunities to win world titles at different weights i mean we have seen male multi-weight world champions but the reason or one of the reasons it tends to take a bit longer for them to achieve it is that it's not as easy to get title shots titles don't become vacant as often and the opportunities don't come up as often it's not as easy to climb the rankings quickly um, with the governing bodies either because of the the depth that we talked about you know someone like terence crawford for example um who's moved up through the weights, um, he unified at light weight. That was a bit of a shock in itself that he was able to become undisputed. Um, and then he got a shot at weight soon after, but that's not always the case. It doesn't always move that quickly. It's more of an exception than the rule. Um, and we see with Canelo as well, it's taken him a few years to become a three-weight world champion. That's why I consider him, by the way, until he wins a genuine full world title at super middleweight, he's a three-weight world champion. But even then it's taken him time to find the right opponent with the right belt at the right time. Because in the women's game, it's a lot easier to move around the weights, for one thing, and also easier to get those opportunities. Amanda Serrano's won you know, world title bets at ridiculously disparate weights. Just shows you how much easier it is in the women's game to do so. But all that being said, it's still a great achievement for her. She's proven dominant against every woman she's faced so far. We hope at some point this year, she faces the last woman to beat her, and that was back in the amateurs in the World Championship, Savannah Marshall. She's unbeaten, looks a puncher um, up at super middle. I think she'll drop down to middle for that fight, and I think uh, Clarissa Shields will come back up. And that, I don't know if Marshall can beat her. Certainly as a pro, um, Shields is more experienced and has beaten by far the better opposition. But she is the last person to beat her uh, back in the amateurs. That kind of sells itself. And it'll be interesting to see how she gets on. On the Saturday night in Atlantic City, we saw a bit of a knockdown, drag out brawl um, between Jesse Hart and uh, Joe Smith Jr. up at light heavyweight. And it was really entertaining, although the fact that it became a split decision in favour of Joe Smith Jr. is another thing that's caused some controversy this weekend because um, Hart seemed to lose clearly. Um, Joe Smith Jr., more aggressive, threw and landed more shots, seemed to dominate the fight. Um, but one judge somehow gave it to Jesse Hart, and that's caused a bit of contention, to say the least. Let's look on the bright side, though. It was an entertaining fight. Joe Smith Jr. has rebounded from the defeats that he's had um, to Sullivan Barrera and to Dimitri Bivol. He'll now go on and hope for another big fight at light heavyweight. I think someone mentioned possibly an Anthony Yard fight um, as an example. I'd quite like to see him against Sergei Kovalev. Now, hear me out. Kovalev's coming back from that defeat to Canelo, but for large parts of that fight, he looked to be the boss. Before that, he got through a mini crisis to stop Anthony Yard. Has he still got it? And has he got enough to regain one of the main world titles at 175 pounds? Well, I think Joe Smith Jr. is a good opponent for him to come back against. He's aggressive and he throws a lot of shots. He's a power puncher. But we know that Kovalev's actually a really good boxer when he decides to box and he's got a lot of power of his own. 
for Joe Smith Jr., the times he's been beaten in the past, particularly against Dimitri Bivol, he just went up against someone who was a better technical boxer and who threw more punches. He was outworked and outboxed. Same against Sullivan Barrera, to be fair. Um, but against Kovalev, coming off that Canelo defeat, coming off the struggle against Yard, I think Smith Jr. might fancy his chances of overrunning him. You know, he's getting on a bit, Kovalev, as well. And I think on the flip side, Kovalev will think this is a opponent we can market as a dangerous comeback fight, but someone I should still comfortably get past and get. And if he beats Joe Smith Jr., who's obviously coming off that win over Jesse Hart, I think that puts Kovalev right back in line for another major fight, a marquee fight. Um, so, yeah, that's the one I'm putting out there. We saw another big show on Saturday night, this one in San Antonio, Texas, as Gary O'Sullivan, um, Irish middleweight, put up a typically gutsy, aggressive performance, but fell just short against Jamie Munguia, who was making his middleweight debut, former WBO super welterweight champion, of course. Moved up, and just too much of everything, really, for O'Sullivan. Too big, too fresh, too powerful, too strong, as it turned out. But there were some hairy moments for Munguia. He did get rocked a few times on the way, but eventually got O'Sullivan out of there in the 11th round. Liam Williams, who's obviously mandatory challenger for Demetrius Andre, the WBO champion, has already been calling out Munguia on uh, social media. I don't expect that to happen necessarily next. I think Munguia's handlers, until his skills catch up with his enthusiasm and, and raw athletic attributes, I think they need to be quite careful in how they match him. Um, but I'm not sure who's going to be next for him. But he'll want a challenge for a world title middleweight, but it's... It's a tough one. I mean, the middleweight title holders are all very accomplished. So we'll have to see what comes next for him. Um, as for Gary O'Sullivan, he talked before the Mungir opportunity about moving down to £154 to Super Welter. I hope now he reconsiders that because if he can make it safely, his strength and power should tell a bit more against those smaller opposition at Super Welter. Now that's what I think of the weekend's action and, and what I'm projecting for the future. I want to know what you think. Whose was the performance of the weekend? Who, who got you most excited and what do you see in the future of the winners of the fights that I've talked about? Let me know. I'll respond to some of the comments. And then I'll be back next week for, for Reflections, 4.30pm Monday. I'll also be here looking ahead to the weekend's action this Thursday, 4.30pm, for Flexpectations. Really appreciate your time, and I'll see you all soon. Cheers. Sky released this video on their YouTube channel. It's Anthony Joshua reacting to Deontay Wilder's last two knockouts. And he's also talking about what he would do against Deontay Wilder, or at least the Sky interviewer asks him how he would approach that fight. AJ says he wouldn't try to outbox Deontay Wilder. He'd go in there to knock him out. He talks about being the ring general and being smart, but ultimately going in there to do damage. Now, a lot of people are doubting this and they're saying, well, you know, AJ's just talking and maybe he is, but Anthony Joshua is a smart guy. He understands that he's not as slick as let's say a Tyson Fury. He knows that. Therefore, going in there to just try and outbox Deontay Wilder probably ain't going to get the job done. Instead, he's going to have to use his own power. And a lot of people are overlooking this when it comes to Deontay Wilder versus many of the top heavyweights. They're acting as though Wilder doesn't have anything to fear from the opponent. But of course he does. Deontay Wilder's never fought anybody who can hit like Anthony Joshua. He's never fought somebody with that kind of raw power or who's as prolific 
at landing power punches as AJ is. And AJ's got power in both hands. There's a reason why Deontay Wilder avoided the Klitschko fight when he first became champion. So Wilder's going to have to worry about what's coming back. And AJ understands that. He's going to go out there and try and put something on Wilder to make him hesitant about letting the right hand go. Now, obviously, if AJ was to go out there reckless and engage in a firefight against Deontay Wilder, he would probably come off second best. So is AJ foolish enough to do that? I don't know. I doubt it, but <laughs> people get crazy ideas in their head and sometimes they run with them. But essentially what he said there about, you know, trying to uh, put some hurt in on Deontay Wilder, I can see why he would want to do that. Now, as far as how long the fight will last, does he really believe that he could stop Wilder inside six rounds or is that just bravado? I suspect it's just bravado because right now, Anthony Joshua understands that Deontay Wilder appeals to a certain demographic. Young people, people who are not necessarily boxing scholars, people who, as we would say, are on a hype team, the kind of people who Deontay Wilder appeals to. And those people are not interested in listening to somebody sit down and talk intellectually and explain their thought pro. They're not interested in that. They're interested in somebody coming out, talking trash, saying, I'll knock you out, and this, that. There's a certain demographic who want to hear that kind of talk. Okay, so AJ is, I think, to some extent, catering a little bit to that audience by saying, oh, it wouldn't go six rounds, all the macho talk. Yeah, so I think that's an element of it right there. I don't think in his heart of hearts, he truly believes that, oh yeah, I could get Wilder out of there inside six. I mean, it's possible he's got the power to, but I'm sure he would be going in there looking to fight a technical fight, but use his power as a deterrent against Deontay Wilder. Another thing that AJ says in this particular video is that he unified well, he was in two unifications, right? Uh, once against Vladimir Klitschko for the vacant WBA, and then against Joseph Parker. Uh, Joseph Parker had the WBO at the time. And he's done that inside, what, 24 fights? Deontay Wilder has had 40-odd fights. He hasn't even been in one unification. And that is a very, very valid point. How come, if Deontay Wilder is this one-face, one-name guy who's not afraid of anybody, how come he's never had a unification? Because he's had opportunities to have unifications. He had an opportunity against Vladimir Klitschko when he first became champion and he publicly, well, his manager, Shelly Finkel, publicly avoided the fight. That's facts. That's not speculation. That's facts. I know it might make some people cry, but you're going to have to deal with it. That's facts. So this one face, one name guy had an opportunity then, decided to go in a different direction. He had several opportunities to fight AJ, to sign up for that unification, turned them all down. That's facts. You can come up with all kinds of different excuses, but if he wanted it so bad, he could be undisputed now if he'd gone ahead and beaten Anthony Joshua. Imagine how much money Wilder would be making today if he'd taken one of those offers to fight Joshua and became undisputed. So the one face, one name guy, how much of that is real and how much of that is hype? That's the question that Anthony Joshua is essentially asking or implying by saying, look, I've unified inside what? twice inside 24 fights, Wilder's had 40-odd fights, where's his unifications at? And once again, he appealed to Deontay Wilder, if you want the one face, one name, one champion, you gotta come see us. So, look, I said after AJ got stopped by Andy Ruiz in the first fight, that I think that that would affect AJ's confidence, and I think it will affect 
Sky's confidence, the zone's confidence, and Eddie Hearn's confidence in AJ. And as such, I predicted that AJ would stay away from the Deontay Wilder fight after he got beat by Ruiz. Even if he manages to beat Ruiz in a rematch, I predicted he'd stay away from Wilder for a while because his confidence is not the same. And it's not just AJ, but his team. At the moment, Deontay Wilder is tied up anyway. So AJ's got time to, you know, build his confidence back up and all that kind of business. But here's the thing about Anthony Joshua that a lot of particularly American fans and, and Wilder fans in the UK don't understand. Anthony Joshua is an extremely confident, self-assured character. He always has been. Now, why do I say this? In fact, AJ might be more confident than I'm giving him credit for. Because I'm saying that in the wake of the Ruiz loss, he would have lost a hell of a lot of confidence to the point that he might not want fights that he previously did want. Perhaps would allow himself to be steered away from some of those fights that he was previously steered towards. But if you look at Anthony Joshua's history as an amateur, as well as a pro, it shows you that this guy is willing to gamble. This guy is willing to jump in at the deep end when he still hasn't learned to swim properly. That's his history. If you look at Anthony Joshua's amateur background. This is AJ in, I think it's, it's the semifinals of the world championships as an amateur fighting Roberto Camarell. This is not the Olympics, people. Don't get it twisted. The Olympics was a year later. This is the world championships. Now, by this time, AJ had only had, what, 20-something amateur fights? He was going up against guys like Camarell who had hundreds of fights. AJ was literally a novice. Yet this guy fought with tremendous confidence. He was away from home in Azerbaijan and he's fighting Camarell like he doesn't even care about his experience and his credentials. This was the number one ranked uh, super heavyweight in the world, I believe, at the time. AJ was thrown in at the deep end. I mean, you reckon you can put most amateurs who have only had, what, 25, 26 fights, whatever it was, in with Camarell and they're going to fight with this much confidence and win? This wasn't some hometown decision, people. This was in the World Championships in Azerbaijan. AJ was a foreign fighter. He wasn't even a big name at this stage in the UK. Nobody knew Anthony Joshua back then. I was one of the few people talking about him. Went over there, thrown in at a deep end, and he showed he could swim. Beat Camarell. He made it to the final against Mezidov. Here, Mezidov is from Azerbaijan. The Azerbaijan president was watching at ringside. So this is, again, this is a hostile situation for a novice AJ in the World Championships back in 2011. And he only lost this fight by one point in this guy's backyard in front of his president. And AJ lost by one point. So for him to go into the deep end consistently in the amateurs and be as successful as he was, what does that tell you about the kind of personality he is? In Anthony Joshua's 16th pro fight, he won a world title. So he was fighting undefeated heavyweights for world titles in his 16th fight. Deontay Wilder, by contrast, in his 16th fight, he fought a guy called Reggie Penner. Now, Reggie Penner is a 6-10 and 10 journeyman. That's who Deontay Wilder fought in his 16th fight when AJ was fighting undefeated guys for, his, for world titles. Then we can look at Anthony Joshua's 17th fight. That was against Dominic Brazil, who was unbeaten at the time, an Olympian. Deontay Wilder, in his 17th fight, fought a guy called Damon Reed. Who on earth is Damon Reed? Let's have a look. At the time, Damon Reed was 46 and 15. So when AJ's fight in Brazil, an Olympian who was 17 and 0, whatever he was, in his 17th fight, 
Wilder was fighting Damon Reed. Damon Reed, there you go, 46 and 15. Wilder didn't fight Brazil until, what was it? Wilder's 42nd fight. So AJ manages to fight Brazil in like his 17th fight. Wilder doesn't manage to fight Brazil until his 42nd fight. Just to give you a, an example of how differently these, these guys were moved. Eric Molina, AJ fought him in his 18th fight. Deontay Wilder fought Eric Molina in his 34th fight. So AJ is fighting people inside his first 20 fights that Deontay didn't fight until he was over, over 30 fights deep. Okay, so who's being moved faster here? Anthony Joshua fought Vladimir Klitschko in his 19th fight. Who did Deontay Wilder fight in his 19th fight? He fought Daniel Coulter. Who on earth is Daniel Coulter? That's a great question, people. Who on earth is he? Daniel Coulter is some random Mexican journeyman, 20 and 8 with one draw. This is him. Doesn't even have his uh, date of birth on his box rec record here. God knows how old, how old he is. He looks very old in this picture. That's who Deontay Wilder was fighting. When AJ was taking on people like Klitschko, Wilder was fighting Daniel Coulter at that stage of his career, 18 fights deep. Then, of course, when Anthony Joshua was fighting Joseph Parker in unification, his 21st fight, Deontay Wilder was fighting who? Marlon Hayes in his, in his 21st fight. Who on earth is Marlon Hayes? Let's have a look. Marlon Hayes, 23 and 10 when Deontay... So you can see here, people, AJ was very, very ambitious early on in his pro career, fighting a much higher level of opposition than Deontay Wilder was fighting when he had the same number of fights. This is a fearless individual. I know I use the word fearless a bit loosely. Most people have got a certain degree of fear. But when you look at his actions, Anthony Joshua, the way he's thrown himself in at the deep end, amateur and pro, early on in his career, this is clearly a person who likes to gamble. When he sparred Tyson Fury, when uh, AJ was just an ABA champion. So ABA champion in the UK is the equivalent to like golden gloves in the United States. AJ sparred Fury at that point when Fury was professional, British champion, and AJ had no respect. Fury, and, and this is coming from Fury himself. Fury, Fury said that he was in the gym and, you know, he got offered to spar this amateur, Anthony Joshua, who was just ABA champion at the time. Fury's a professional, you know, British champion. And he's thinking, okay, you know, I'll, I'll have a little move around with the amateur, take it easy on him. He said AJ came flying out at the start of the first round and attacked him. You know, like some kind of wild animal. These, these, are, these are the things Tyson Fury said. That AJ wasn't intimidated. He wasn't impressed. None of that. He went straight flying in and attacked Tyson Fury. So again, think about somebody with that kind of mentality. This is not someone who's afraid of challenges or getting in there against big punches. He's been doing that since the beginning. So going back to this interview right here where he's talking about you know, he wants to fight Wilder and this, that, and the other. He's been wanting to fight Wilder for years. Yeah, <laughs> AJ's a guy who likes to challenge himself. That's what the facts show us. He wasn't fighting journeyman in his 18th, 19th fight. The Damon Reeds and all these kind of people. No, that's what Wilder was doing. AJ was fighting championship level fighters and unifying against Parker in his 21st fight when Wilder was fighting Donuts and Cream Puffs in his 21st. So don't get the personality types confused here, people. Understand that AJ has been a warrior from day dot. 
just because he doesn't come out with all the braggadocious trash talk and talk about catching bodies, that's just talk. You can have all the intentions you want and say this, that, and the other outside of the ring. Inside the ring, it's just you and the other guy with a pair of gloves on. Your talk is not going to help you in that situation there. The only thing that's going to help you is what you can do with your fists. Yeah, all of the brash talk and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and appealing to, to a certain demographic, it's all done. Now we, we'll see what you can do with your actual fists. Anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below about this particular video. Uh, the stuff AJ says, you know, AJ, again, he's a very confident character. Anybody who doesn't believe that, just go look at his history, amateur and pro, and what he's achieved in such a short space of time, because it will tell you that he is a confident guy. Anyway, I'm out. Join me on Patreon. I upload a minimum of two podcasts every single week, covering a wide variety of controversial topics, as well as live stream Q&A sessions. Take a look on screen right now at some of the podcasts I've produced so far. For just $3 a month, the equivalent of about £2 a month, you get access to all my new podcasts and my entire back catalogue of past podcasts, including my popular Confessions of a Nightclub Bouncer series. You can listen on your computer or on your smartphone or tablet by downloading the Patreon app from the Google Play Store or the App Store for free. The Patreon app also allows you to download each podcast in MP3. For less than the price of a cup of coffee, you get access to dozens of hours of exclusive content. It's easy to sign up, there's no contract, and you can cancel at any time. So come and join our community of free and critical thinkers by signing up with me here on Patreon today.